0: Good morning and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale, and with me as always are Trish Lambert and the illustrious Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. And today we're going to be talking about rhetorical level and register and language. So fascinating stuff. You don't want to skip this episode. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is this is you know it's hard because this topic is you know it sounds boring to talk about like let's discuss the rhetorical register of our thing it sounds really dull but it's 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 a huge foundational issue and it's a major it's it's of, of obviously a huge importance uh, for yeah. Tolkien itself and in some ways you know this episode you know the the fundamental questions of this episode contain one of the, the sort of core questions of the entire theory of our approach to the adaptation, which is, like, how close to Tolkien are we really going to try to stay? Um, what is going to be our whole attitude uh, towards, you know, Tolkien and the connection between the text and the film? You know, those 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 really big issues really underlie this topic today, so... So oh, right. it's obviously crucial that people not skip this episode. Obviously, and by the
2: way, I don't for all for those of you that are in uh, Corey's poetry course, and I think this will apply here as well. We have a new T-shirt to get Corey. It's 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 going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. That's Corey's new thing. It's going to be awesome. So be. I think that applies here too.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it is. It's absolutely going to be awesome. So we're gonna we. Uh, we begin by a sort of a glance back, especially since uh, we had to delay this episode by a week. So we're looking back now three weeks into the dim and distant past uh, at our previous episode, in which we were talking. To- what were we? Oh, yes, magic, magic, and music, and the representation of the Valar and of Iluvatar. Um And I think that that's great. In fact, I was recently, uh, as I think I've been, I think I've mentioned, I've been reading, Tol- I've been rereading Tolkien's letters, covered, you know, the collected letters. Uh, Cover to cover, which I've not done in in several years, and finding letters that it's like I've never read, even read before. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, whenever I come back to things after years, it's always such a fun experience. I'm always like, wow, was that? Has that been there all the all this time? Anyway, um, so uh, w- and one of the things that I was noticing with some pleasure this past week uh, was that in, in several places in, in Tolkien's letters, he talks, especially in, like, the 50s and 60s, when he, you know, so after he publishes The Lord of the Rings and so therefore now has a really large audience. But, of course, he's still focused on the Silmarillion and still really obsessed with the Silmarillion, so he keeps he keeps writing these letters to people where he's like, let me explain the whole Silmarillion to you because you really need to know this in order to understand The Lord of the Rings. And... um and in a couple of his descriptions of the Valar, he actually uh, he actually mentions that um, the, the 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 thing that we were coming up with about representing them fundamentally in elemental form before they meet the elves and see the elves and and know what the elves really look like and then accommodate themselves to the elves. Um, he actually says something very similar to that, um, that uh, the the visual representations of the Valar, you know, the, you know, he goes over how they're not really bodies exactly, um, but how they are more just like a, a representation of who they are and the things that they're associated with. So, uh, so I actually think that our, our idea seems to be pretty close to uh, an idea that Tolkien himself had about that, so I think that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah,
2: that's I, that's I was kind of cool. thinking about that last week. You know, I was thinking about the fact that, well, you know, the firstborn haven't arrived but they you know yavanna and, and company have al- have certainly you know created right. animals and plants and whatnot so i mean why would yavanna take the form of a bear or a hedgehog for example right you know i mean that you know and i was thinking about that because in uh, in lotro there's a who i believe is orome actually is uh is depicted as he's bipedal, but he's got like this great huge you know antlers and stuff, and I thought to myself, I could totally see him being like that was oh,
1: that the dude down in down in Ened yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah and been, the reason
2: I... I think it's Orome is because he refers to his masters in the west
1: the uh, movie, yeah.
2: dialogue and I, of course they can't say his name but I think that's who it's supposed to be. And it's a really great depiction. In fact, what I want to do is go take a screenshot of that and actually post it for people to see because it's a pretty neat. You know, he's bipedal, which I suppose he would need to be since he rides a horse, right? So in his case, you know. Right. But, um, but anyway, so I was thinking, too, you know, that that certainly, you know, even animalistic, they could actually be animals. I mean, I could see Yvonne as a big she-bear kind of thing or, or right. you know, something like that. So anyway. Right,
1: right. Right. Um. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And, uh, you know, your comment about the hedgehog is, is also apposite. You know, I mean, we need to, I, I think, Yavana's version of, like, what uh, a, the assumptions that humans make about, like, what, which of the beasts and which of the plants are, you know, noble and dignified would likely be very different from mm-hmm. Yavanna's. I mean, remember Yavanna's statement um, that all have their worth, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, there is there is there is something of her thought uh, in every one of those creatures. And so, you know, she would be just as likely, it seems, to take the form of a hedgehog as she would of, you know, some large and physically imposing animal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I kind of like that. We could sort of shift. We could sort of shift around Um but anyway yeah we'll we'll see by the way i'm hoping to get to that enadwide quest soon i finally made a little bit of progress with my oh excellent by so i'm oh, good. i'm, I'm, I'm I, and actually it's one of the reasons i have cuz i've heard about that quest chain and i'm hunting for it so we'll see so <laughs> <Slow> to uh, speak <laughs> exactly no um, pun intended yeah. uh so good yeah so i mean it it seems like we're we're we're, we're in agreement uh, i didn't i didn't hear any any uh violent uh voices of dissent uh among our listeners on the discussion board though perhaps i didn't look far enough to find it but I, I didn't see in my looks um any 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 violent dissent uh among our listeners and with with any of the decisions that we came to last time so i feel pretty comfortable uh with where we were dave do you have any sort of follow up thoughts or things that you've been uh, uh musing on over the last 3 weeks since our last discussion on that
0: no i'm i'm pretty much on the uh, i'm on the same page as you guys that that that, that whole topic turned out to be surprisingly uncontroversial
1: mm mm-hmm. mhm mm mhm yeah. I have a feeling this week's is going to be
0: a raging controversy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I think it is I th- I do think there's a greater chance at at, at controversy. Um but, but I have a I have a lot to say about that. Before we launch into that though, uh, uh I wanna it's quick, it's announcement it's, time. Is
2: are other people hearing Corey the way I'm hearing Corey? Uh
1: it depends. How are you hearing me?
2: Might be me. You kind of going in and out. Must be me. Okay. Uh, okay. you went out,
0: went in and out a little bit, but not not terrible.
1: Okay. Well, I don't think I, I, think I shall on me. my own recordings, so at least that will be okay. That's good. If you can understand me. Um. Okay. Uh, announcements. Um. So I want to uh, first of all the first uh, and biggest announcement uh, that we have uh, from Mythgard this week is we are uh, officially announcing all three of our coming fall classes, which should be really cool. One I believe I've already mentioned, which is the Star Wars course, um, and uh, that will be that will be just awesome. Amy Sturgis' Star Wars class. So any for anyone who loves uh, Star Wars and is interested in Star Wars, this is not just going to be a discussion of the films. Um, and I would also emphasize Amy Sturgis's class. Are, are nothing like mine. You know, my specialty is close reading of books. So, you know, when you, d- you take a Mythgard Academy class with me, you know, if you take one of my courses, what we're going to be doing is really just sort of digging into the primary texts and really focusing on a close discussion of those. That's my bag. It's what I do. It's what I love. Um, that's what my classes are like. That's not what Amy Sturgis does. What Amy Sturgis does is something really different from me and absolutely fascinating. Um, Her specialty is looking at intellectual history and sort of the entire the broader intellectual and historical and cultural context of works. So when you study things like science fiction or Harry Potter or dystopian literature, or Star Wars with Amy Sturgis, what you get is a study of the entire phenomenon. It's it's uh, sort of literary and intellectual roots going backwards, looking outward uh, to uh, the, the larger cultural impact that the films and books uh, and uh, and everything else has had. It's re- it's really great. So uh, it will be a really uh, eye-opening experience to sort of come to understand the whole Star Wars phenomenon a lot
2: better. I love this. Kate Neville says that she has a bombadilian delight in her subjects.
1: <laughs> she does have a bombadilian delight in her subjects. That's a great way to describe it, Kate. Uh absolutely yeah. Kate says that Dr. Sturgis is an encyclopedia. She absolutely is uh a very enthusiastic encyclopedia. Um so anyway, so that's what the Star Wars course is gonna be about. It's uh it's you know, again, for anyone who's really a diehard fan of Star Wars, this course is gonna be like a dream come true. Um And speaking of things coming true, a long-time request of uh, MythCard students uh, is coming true this fall, and that is our Introduction to Anglo-Saxon Course Taught by Mike Drought. Um, that is going to be really cool. If you are a Tolkien fan, you know how much Anglo-Saxon meant to Tolkien and, uh, uh, and you know, many Tolkien fans, you know, have this sort of desire to learn a little bit more about Old English so that they can understand better what Tolkien was talking about and read some of these texts that, like Beowulf, uh, in the original that meant so much to Tolkien and to, to begin to immerse themselves in that language which was so influential on him, not just the literature, but the language itself. Um, so we are going Going to offer a one-semester intro to Anglo-Saxon. This course will take you from zero to Beowulf by the end of the semester. Um, <laughs> so, so it's 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 going to be just a, a, a great opportunity. It's going to
0: be
2: and awesome.
1: Yeah, and it's not just that you will be, you know. Through the language and qualified to read Beowulf by the end of class, you're actually going to be spending the second half of that class actually doing translations and reading Anglo-Saxon poetry, um, and not just Beowulf. Uh, from the Battle of Malden, from the Wanderer, from you know there, uh, from the Dream of the Rood, uh, some of the really great Anglo-Saxon poems, um, as well as portions of Beowulf. So, um, so it's going to be it's going to be a you know a literature and poetry class as well. Um, so that's cool. and the third class, which has which I've uh, haven't uh, announced at all before, is uh, uh, we have a, a a course being taught by a, a new uh, a, an exciting new lecturer who's never taught uh, with us before, um, but has been on my wish list for a long time, and that is John Garth, author of uh, Tolkien and the Great War um and uh john is going to be doing uh something which is another great example of something that i don't do well uh so his class is going to be is going to be doing uh again more stuff that i don't do and that is a really thoughtful and careful look at tolkien's biography and and you know to especially tolkien's early life and the origins of his work um so he's going to be looking not only at the world war 1 uh, period, of course, which is what uh, John has really specialized in, but also, especially, his relationship with the TCBS, with his his friends, in American terms, basically like his high school friends, um, with whom he formed that really intimate group, which was such a, which was just absolutely the foundation of his creative life and uh And, of course, as you know as you probably know, several of them died in World War one, and you know so what were the impact of of what was the impact of of that circle of friends on tolkien 's life um and and of their deaths and of the time in world war one um it 's going to be you know if you 've read uh, uh john garth 's book, which is just one of the best books on Tolkien written in the last ten years um but, uh, if you've read John Garth's book, you know, you've gotten kind of a glimpse of some of the things that he's going to be doing in this class. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to be really cool. So those are the, uh, um, those are the two, uh, the two other classes in addition to the star Wars one, which I announced before. So, uh, we, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's the first week I've been talking about the John Garth course cause we've just sort of finally, uh, confirmed all the details and everything, but we're really excited about those classes. So those are the three classes that we're offering this fall. Uh, and, uh, they're uh, they're going to be really cool. Two other quick announcements before we uh, before we move on. One is this week we also began our new Mythgard Academy class. We had on Wednesday night the first session of our class on the lays of Beleriand. Uh, if you haven't read the lays of Beleriand, first of all, don't feel bad because. Uh, Almost nobody has read The Ways of Balerian. Some people have, I know. Uh, many people, you know, I am not gonna assume nobody's read The Lays of Balerian, but like let's be <laughs> frank, almost nobody reads The Ways of Balerian, okay? Like it's it's one of the I, I claimed in in the in, in the class on Wednesday night that The Lays of Balerian is probably in the top five least read books by Tolkien of anything that's ever been published <laughs> by Tolkien. Hard um, to imagine. Yeah, because it's not only, like, in the History of Middle-Earth series and beyond the Book of Lost Tales, which people do read, um, but it's also all poetry, you know, and people skip poetry. So anyone who's taken the Lays of Valerian off the shelf, you know, is likely to sort of open the book somewhere in the middle and just look at the verse on the page and... uh, likely close the book and back slowly away. So it's, but it's awesome. Um, and, you know, we started the alliterative uh, Lay of the Children of Hurin on Wednesday, and it was really cool. And I'm really looking forward to getting back to that uh, and looking at uh, Tolkien's, de- Tolkien's depiction of the death of Beleg the Bowman uh, in, uh, in in the Lay of the Children of Hurin, the alliterative Lay of the children fort is just fantastic it's 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 by far the most incredible treatment of that moment which is such a powerful Silmarillion moment um and it's the best one by far uh, so i'm really looking forward <clears throat> Looking forward to that, in as much as I can look forward to anything so painful, uh, but um, but anyway, so we're, we're going to be we're going to we're going to be doing that. We're going to be doing the Lay of Lathian, uh, so uh, certainly great preparation for our forthcoming discussions uh, later on down in the Silmarillion Film Project, um, because I'm definitely going to be interested in thinking about um, the Lay of Lathian and the Lay of the Children of Hurin when we get there. So you can get a, a little advance uh, on the uh, the the subsequent. Recommended reading there. Um, so that's again Wednesday nights at nine thirty PM Eastern Time. Uh, uh, so definitely do, <clears throat> definitely to check that out on the Mythgard Academy page. Um, on Mythgard.org. Um, and final announcement is I am uh, resuming again my Twitch broadcasts uh, of my Lotro adventures if you want to see my exploration of The Lord of the Rings online and my discussion of their adaptation of Tolkien's work. Um, I'm going to be resuming that in about two hours from now, uh, Friday afternoons at 12.30 p.m. Uh, today, uh, in about two hours, I will be heading into Buckland and the Old Forest. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. So those are our mythgard announcements for today uh now we want to look at uh, this is this is where this is the part of the show where i normally look at the book context of this episode and that's kind of tricky because of course we're looking at the overall register of the entire thing um so um which depending uh, on
0: the book you look at there's actually there's actually some non trivial
1: variability as well Exactly, so that is is in fact precisely what I want to talk about um, so i 've decided that the best thing I can do is to choose some examples um, and I have four examples these are not i 've not chosen these because they 're perfect examples they 're just kind of top of my head moments, um, some of them the ones i just kind of randomly opened to uh, in the books, but I thought that they would serve. Sort of four separate examples, and I'm going to go in roughly ascending rhetorical register. Okay, so the first is from the Fellowship of the Ring. It's paragraph two of A Long Expected Party. So we're talking about the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring here. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar, and he had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years, ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. And if that was not enough for fame, there was also his prolonged vigor to marvel at. Time wore on, but it seemed to have little effect on Mr. Baggins. At ninety, he was much the same as at fifty. At ninety-nine, they began to call him well-preserved, but unchanged would have been nearer the mark. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess apparently perpetual youth, as well as reputedly inexhaustible wealth. Okay, so now, of course, the thing to remember is that in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring here, we have the narrator's voice, which is, of course, what I was reading, uh, interspersed with hobbit dialogue. And hobbity dialogue is, well, it's very hobbity, right? And it tends to be um, uh, even rustic. Um, you know, it will have to be paid for. It isn't natural, and trouble will come of it. Is of course the line that comes immediately after that paragraph, um, and we get you know Gaffer Gamgee uh, arguing with Sandyman down the pub. Um, you know, so it's it's not like uh, uh, the the narrator is is the only sort of register that we have. One question that we're going to need to address later on uh, here in our discussion is going to be what kind of gap do we want? First of all, again, do we want any kind of a voiceover narrative? We've talked about that a little bit Um, and, uh, you know, we've we, I think, uh, have expressed some inclination against that Um, and so it's sort of all dialogue that we're looking at, but again, to what extent do we frame um, uh, so, okay, so what do we see in the rhetorical level of of the narrator here? in this passage. Um, There are not very many rhetorical words. There are a couple different things to think about when we talk about rhetorical register, I would say. One is vocabulary, just what words are being used, um, what level of obscurity, what level of archaism, particularly when we're talking about Tolkien. are the are are the words being used? The second is syntactic structure. How complicated are the sentences? How much does he utilize? Does he use modern versus archaic, um, uh, uh, versus archaic sentence structures? Um, for instance, again, I was just reminded of this when I was rereading the letters recently, when he is, he is taking up the challenge of somebody. It was one of the things that people complained about about The Lord of the Rings was they thought that he was being uh, sort of needlessly archaic in his, uh, in his sentence structure at times, because he, he, would, he, would, he would do things, not like poetically, not in dialogue, but with the narrator, who's supposed to be speaking, you know, in a modern voice to modern people, um, he would still say things like, arms they found there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that, that was a particular line that was quoted to him, to be like, come on, seriously, nobody talks like that. Nobody says, arms they found there. Um, and Tolkien gave a, 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 a really sharp response in his letter, and the point that he made was, okay, no, people do, real people do talk like this. It's true that real modern people don't talk like this, but real old people, like medieval people, did in fact talk like this, and there's some virtue in it, and uh, there are ways, and you know, this is the letter in which he gave basically the translation of, like, what, you know, the, he gave this passage of how Theoden talked and said, here's how Theoden would have said it if he were a 20th century person. Um, And it's awful, (laughs) and I think he's right, you know, he's like, it's not that I can't do this, but I choose not to do this because it's not how Theoden would think. Uh, You know, modern people think in a certain way, old, you know, uh, Theoden would have thought in a different way. But again, then he defended even using that kind of language as the narrator, um, because it, 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 it has a different force, it conveys a different thing. Um, so thinking, again, back to this example that I read, what we can hear here in the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring is um, his syntax is rather complex, right? I mean, we see that these sentences are long and somewhat uh, convoluted, uh, the, uh, most famous, uh, I think, among the part that I read, is the, the really elegant structure of that last sentence. There were some that shook their heads and thought this was too much of a good thing. Semicolon. It seemed unfair that anyone should possess, apparently, perpetual youth, as well as, reputedly, inexhaustible wealth. It's Complicated syntax, but it's complicated in a kind of a conversational way. It's yeah. still basically a conversational tone. The, uh, the the There's little in the way of archaic vocabulary or difficult words. Um, but even you think about interjections like, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End. So you can hear how he's adopting a more conversational tone, right? That's what we get here at the beginning of The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, example number two The Return of the King uh, We're at the field of Cormallen, So they've just heard the songs The uh, praise them, the ring bearers Praise them with great praise song And so the red blood blushing in their faces And their eyes shining with wonder Frodo and Sam went forward and saw that amidst the clamorous host Were set three high seats built of green turves behind the seat upon the right floated white on green a great horse running free upon the left was a banner silver upon blue a ship swan proud faring on the sea but behind the highest throne in the midst of all a great standard was spread in the breeze and there a white tree flowered upon a sable field beneath a shining crown and seven glittering stars on the throne sat a mail-clad man a great sword was laid across his knees but he wore no helm as they drew near he rose and then they knew him, changed as he was, so high and glad of face, kingly, lord of men, dark-haired with eyes of grey. Very different from the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? And uh, What do we notice here? We notice a willingness to use more obscure words. I'm not sure how obscure the word terves would have been. It's certainly obscure now uh, in, in 21st century America. Um. I'm not confident that that one would have been quite such a puzzler uh, in earlier 20th century England, but still it's unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, uh, again, not too much. We have his use of heraldic terms, a sable field, right, Uh, for instance. But, uh, But most of these words are not themselves difficult words. But he uh the you know amidst the clamorous host is somewhat archaic uh but uh but most of the words are not that hard. What is different is the syntax and the register here he is unapologetically using a more archaic and more poetic syntax right um the red blood blushing in their faces and their eyes shining with wonder. Um, they, they went forward and saw that amidst the clamorous host were set three high seats um, this is uh, much more stately, much more of a much less conversational right we, um, uh, and, uh, and 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 defi- and so you know, though we see a similar complex uh, syntax uh, the effect is very very different um, okay so that's example number two. Example number three, from the Silmarillion. Um, And this uh, this is one of the random passages I opened to. This is in the Of Myglin chapter. As Myglin grew to full stature, he resembled in face and form rather his kindred of the Noldor, but in mood and mind he was the son of his father. His words were few, save in matters that touched him near, and then his voice had a power to move those that heard him, and to overthrow those that withstood him. He was tall and black-haired, and his eyes were dark, yet bright and keen as the eyes of the Noldor, and his skin was white. Often he went, with Aeol, to the cities of the dwarves in the east of Eredlinden, and there he learned eagerly what they would teach, and above all the craft of finding the ores of metals in the mountains." Okay. So now, what do you notice about this? Uh, First, again, the vocabulary is a step up, right? You know, things like grew to full stature, we don't use that word that way, though stature is a word used often in the Lord of the Rings in a similar way. We don't really talk like that much. Um, uh, And... uh, Uh, that sounds a lot more kind of King James Bible-ish to modern modern readers, more even than anything in that passage in The Return of the King did, I would say. Um, Not to mention, his voice had a power to move those that heard him and to overthrow those that withstood him. Um, uh, We don't talk like that anymore. Uh, That's much further from conversational language. uh, even when he's... Much is to dis- our
0: mutual di- disappointment, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I think that part of the... Th- one of the thing, obviously, that we need to do is that we all need to agree to try to bring back this conversational level into our daily lives as much as possible. I think that we can start a revolution. Uh, a at every
0: possible opportunity.
1: At every possible opportunity, especially in professional and corporate settings. Uh, but anyway, okay, so... Notice, even when he's describing simple things, he was tall and black-haired, his eyes were dark, yet bright and keen as the eyes of the Noldor, and his skin was white. Now, that's a relatively simple sentence, but again, when you think about comparing that to how a a normal 21st century person would say that, he was tall and black-haired, is still quite different from, he had black hair, that's what we would say. Right. He, had black, he was tall and had black hair. Um, it's a subtle difference, but again, it shows that, that, that uh, fundamental difference in approach. Um, he, he was tall and black-haired, and his eyes were dark. Um, uh, he learned eagerly what they would teach, and above all, the craft of finding the ores of metals in the mountains. Um, see, notice again, like, we would just talk about mining. Right? but he doesn't use the word mining, though it's not that he objects to the word mining. Uh, you know, the, word, the word miner, for instance, is used in the Gondolin context when Miglin gets there. Um, so it's not like that's one of those newfangled words that he just wants to get rid of, but the craft of finding the ores of metals in the mountains. What he accomplishes by doing that, and this is the thing that a lot of people misunderstood, been reading The Lord of the Rings, and especially The Silmarillion, is sort of just to take that for mere affectation. Right? That he learned how to mine you know, he, he learned about mining from the dwarves would be a simpler and more efficient way to say that, right? But if you say that, you're saying something different than if you, when you say, the craft of finding the ores of metals in the mountains. Um, you think about the association first of all, the emphasis on the fact that it is a craft, right? It is a, it is not just a skill, it's not just a technique, it's not just like a, it's just a vocational training he's getting from the dwarves, right? It prompts us to think about the relationship between dwarves and the ore in the mountains differently and therefore the 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 kind of craft that myguin is learning even the reference to the mountains right um the craft of finding the ores of metals in the mountains the use of the verb finding instead of mining right again it's not just like undertaking a professional task i've got to go mining um but rather you are you are finding the ores you are you are going to search for metals in the mountains um it suggests a different kind of relationship between those craftsmen and the metal they are going to find. Um, And, of course, the the connection to the mountains uh, is important for the dwarfish context, and again, suggesting uh, that that setting is important there, that it's about sort of the relationship not only between the craftsmen and the metal, but between the craftsmen and the mountains. So, again, something is being done by uh, by doing that, and it's not just creating an effect. Right? Here's um uh, here's my fourth example, and it is from the Book of Lost Tales. Excellent. This this is Vire's description of the uh when she starts explaining about the Cottage of Lost Play. Then said Vyrae, know, know then that aforetime... This is our first piece of dialogue I'm actually giving us. Know then that aforetime, in the days of Inwe, and farther back it is hard to go in the history of the Eldar, there was a place of fair gardens in Valinor beside a silver sea. Now this place was near the confines of the realm, but not far from Kor, yet by reason of its distance from the sun-tree Lindeloss, there was a light there as of summer evening." Save only when the silver lamps were kindled on the hill at dusk, and then, and then little lights of white would dance and quiver on the paths, chasing black shadow dapples under the trees. This was a time of joy to the children, for it was mostly at this hour that a new comrade would come.
0: Ah,
2: well. So let's see.
1: I don't know the
0: passage he was reading. Otherwise, I would totally pull. It I don't either. And start reading it. Actually, but you I, know, I th- I, I didn't catch any can, of what can, he can. said.
2: We could get really like very basic and say, you know, are, are these, are we going to have English accents or British accents?
0: Right. Yes. I mean, I'm
2: kind of laughing, but what are do they doing? Game of Thrones? Is it sort of a, a mix between two? I was,
0: I was waiting to bring, I was waiting to bring up Game of Thrones um, uh, uh, till we actually sort of m- transitioned into, all right, how are we going to adapt this? Um, uh, but, but, I think I think an appropriate thing to do at this point while Cory while Cory finds his way back to us from the void is to uh, is to anticipate that conversation um, I I don't know how helpful Game of Thrones is as an example here because Game of Thrones the register in terms of in terms of accents sure they yeah they they just use like a variety of, of you know sort of like generic fantasy British accent, um, but in terms of uh, in terms of like you know register and that kind of stuff, the Game of Thrones doesn't have the same problem because his he the the books themselves are written in a modern register. Um, you know like like uh, uh, they 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 use modern curses they use modern language constructions i mean game of thrones I- I itself is just a modern story there's nothing there's only it only has the trappings of a medieval world but um, and maybe maybe some of the the political structures, but even the the politics frequently feel modern. It really it is it's yeah. it's a modern story just told in a fantasy setting that happens to resemble. So in that sense, it's very different from you know it's much more a modern fantasy versus Tolkien who was writing like this fantastical history. So seems to me
2: like we almost need to come up with some synthesized accent, and it and I think according to uh, kind of what. Corey's talking about i mean we do it almost by race you know like the valar would all have like a similar dialect say yeah the elves would have a or maybe the different elves might have slightly different dialect you know hobbits would definitely have a different country type dialect you know what i mean i mean and and then if we do that then of course the narrators depending on who the narrator is would would match whatever race they're part of yep uh I, but is... I almost feels like we need to synthesize it because, like, you know, like, like Philip says, you know, John Rhys-Davies made all dwarves sound Scottish and, you know, uh, what is it, you know, Sean Aston put on a country, you know, bumpkin English accent kind of for his, you know, character. I mean I, I almost think we need to sort of derive something as opposed to, whereas, you know, borrow from current
0: – Whereas Elijah Wood sounded this. like he was from L.A. That's right. <laughs>
2: That's right, which is in keeping with, um, with what's his name, who did Robin Hood, sounding like he was from Iowa. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. I don't know, I mean, I kind of wonder,
1: uh, Corey may be coming back. I am back, by the way. Oh, All right, hello. hey. But you guys were doing great, I didn't want to interrupt.
2: Well, we kind of went, you know, we took it down quite a long register since we didn't know where you were reading
1: from. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was. Reading or attempting to read from the Book of Lost Tales, and I have no idea what happened yes. there. By the way, my internet. Well, and
2: I, I was going to say, I wonder how long he read before he realized he couldn't. No, hear I did.
1: I, 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 I could hear you say that you couldn't hear me. So.
2: Ah, okay. And uh, then what is it? Um, I had to laugh because uh, Andrew Matheson said Corey was speaking a particularly archaic form of Dalek.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That was the that was the, the running joke. Corey was right around the time you said, "Okay, now here's an example from the, you know of, of archaic language from the Lost Tales," and then you and then you uh, turned into like a series of beeps and like weird audio noises. <laughs> I'm
2: like, like no, let's not use that rhetoric. Let's not use that rhetoric. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> that's that's very good. That's very good. Uh, okay,
2: so in film parlance. In film parlance, "Book of Lost Tales," take
1: two. <laughs> take two. Okay, just I'll I'll read it. I'll, I'll read a, 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 a little snippet. Let's hope I don't. Let's hope I don't break the internet this time. Um, I really <laughs> like. I really like. Who was it? Philip Menzies said uh, the internet is too modern for, for, for the passage I was, I was <laughs> attempting to read. Uh, so, at, at the risk of breaking it again, I will. I will try a second time. Byre says, Know then that aforetime, in the days of Inwe, and farther back it is hard to go in the history of the Eldar, there was a fair a place of fair gardens in Valinor beside a silver sea. Now this place was near the confines of the realm but not far from Kor, yet by reason of its distance from the sun tree Lindalos, there was a light there as of summer evening, save only when the silver lamps were kindled on the hill at dusk, and then little lights of white. Would dance and quiver on the paths, chasing black shadow dapples under the trees that is uh, the the book of lost tales register is in prose one of the most archaic uh and distant from modern usage that Tolkien ever used um and you can hear the differences between there even you know, even between there and the silmarillion um, uh he he uses sort of extended expressions instead of simple words many times. You know, that language which sounds much more explicitly poetic. Even with things as there was a light there as of summer evening, save only when the silver lamps were kindled on the hill at dusk. Um... That's a really complicated way of saying what is a comparatively simple thing. Now, again, my the, my point is not that Tolkien is needlessly elaborating this. The elaboration has a function, but mm-hmm. you know we we would need to think about what exactly is that function and what is the what is sort of the goal there. Um, his use of of obscure words is much more pronounced uh, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, uh then uh, It's funny as tolkien got older his vocabulary uh d- his used vocabulary um got sort of shrank that is his his he obviously delights in old and obscure words mm-hmm. um but he uses them much less frequently uh later on um yeah. it's the uh Oh, you losing me again? I nope, lost you. We're good. Nope. Okay. it's fine. You still, you if, you, still had him. if you if you if you read, for instance, you know his poem, "The Man in the Moon Came Down Too Soon." You lost oh. me. Okay, All right. Yeah, I still
2: had him. Yeah. Boy,
1: this is going to be a fun episode to edit. Anyway, <laughs> it's, um,
2: it's a regional thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But We may not. We may just let it. We may
1: just. I'm kind of wondering if this is a go-to webinar issue, actually, because. Uh, I was getting everything on the internet except this site when I went down. But anyway, um uh so anyway, the point is that uh you know, he 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 got more modern. He left this beside people who complain that the Silmarillion is complicated uh and needlessly arta- ar- archaic. You know, just pick up the Book of Lost Tales and you'll see how much he changed uh when it comes to that. But okay, so, however, you guys had uh, had moved on and were talking about the ways that we would do dialogue among... among well,
2: I was just, we were trying to fill time, basically, until our... Right.
1: We were good,
0: but let's not race ahead too fast. Yeah, right. right.
1: So the question is, basically, how are we going to do it? What kind of differences are we going to introduce? What's going to be our overall strategy? I'd like mm-hmm. to actually start our discussion, or restart our discussion, um, with, uh, some, some comments that readers have been leaving on our discussion board in anticipation, uh, those of you who have been doing your homework and, and thinking through this stuff and posting about it, um, and I'd like to just say in general, uh, you guys have been making really awesome posts, I love the oh discussions gosh, that are know. happening on the discussion board, really. um, so I want to give, uh, some props to people in general, um, Uh, let me start with a few comments that I thought uh, uh, spoke really good uh, some sort of really interesting general comments on the issue. Uh, First uh, uh, Brie who's here today, Brie's comment she says overall I see no reason to handhold a modern-day audience I've always detested treating the audience like complete idiots instead of challenging them to actually use their brains for once there's no reason movies should be dumbed down just because they're targeted towards a mass market nor because they're a visual medium. Art should not be a slave to a perceived Audience, totally agree. I'm I in violent that,
2: agreement with violent that.
1: agreement. Yes, I hate that tendency in Hollywood to dumb things down. Um, and so, absolutely, yes, totally agree. This is this is uh, this decision is uh, easier to make. Uh, since we don't actually have a public that we have to please. So, um, you know, we don't actually have to worry about sales. Uh, we still do need to think about this, you know, Dave, as you were saying before, and I do want to be thinking about this. I don't, you know, I, just because our, our our endeavor here is theoretical and imaginary doesn't mean we should actually disregard people. We need to be thinking about this as if we did have a public. Mm-hmm. But I agree that I, I don't think that we need to, you know, follow, that we must Constrict ourselves to traditional Hollywood wisdom, uh, well, especially me, since I don't something. think it's wise. But
2: Do, don't we see that changing somewhat with some of these off, uh, off, you know, off broadcast? You know, what of my, you know, like Netflix and those kind of stars and those, the shows uh, HBO. You know, like Game of Thrones is a good example. Outlander is a good example. House of Cards, which I haven't watched, but I'm assuming that also they actually don't dumb down for their audiences. So I think we have some precedent. You know, we wouldn't necessarily be getting into brand new territory by actually sticking to a higher you know, higher intellectual level.
0: That that actually actually interestingly I think the best example in there is um is uh, House of cards, in that that I think um Kevin Spacey's character uses very not archaic language, but certainly not modern language, right? like like sort of old school Southern politics type language.
2: Right, right. right.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think I and you know, Brie went on to mention in that comment, um, you know, people still read Shakespeare or watch Shakespeare adaptations that uses Shakespeare's actual language. Um, it mm-hmm. is possible to get people to do this. And I don't th- I mean, I agree that the tendency I I I, I find the tendency to say let's appeal to to the least common denominator, um I I I find that a very yeah, painful thing
0: to do. Um, <laughs> I would say, I would say the the archaic nature of the language um, is less a problem than the run on sentences. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> By the way, I guess our taking the high road means no dwarf trebuchets in our show, right?
1: <sighs> well, uh, I don't know. Only if I appropriate. Mean, I think only we. If could...
2: it's only if it moves the story along, so to speak.
1: Exactly. You know, if we want to do so, if, 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 if I, I think if, if the opportunity arises and we find ourselves wanting to include a scene with, say, naked dwarves forming a pyramid <laughs> in a fountain, we should indulge ourselves. But only if that really comes up and seems to be compulsory, I think, to move our story forward, because that's obviously the only occasion in which anyone would do such a thing. So
2: That's um, right
1: yeah yeah um uh, but anyway okay so now i agree about that uh, Halstein ha- um spoke for i think is uh, for for many people i think uh, on the discussion board when he said uh, i think we should try to follow tolkien's language as far as possible his style is one of the things making the books great um and you know it's the style of tolkien's Language is a really crucial thing. I mean, uh, it, I do think that, as much as Tolkien's style is a challenge to modern adaptation, it is also, I think, in an unusual way, really an essential part of the work. You know, um, if you have, if you have a Tolkien work which radically changes the language and style, I, you know, like. So take for instance, um, well, I mean, take for instance Game of Thrones. Um, I think that you know George R. R. Martin's story is less essentially tied in his own particular language choices than Tolkien's is. If you got, uh, if you did, now they do—they stick pretty closely to the dialogue in many places in the in the in the. HBO adaptation mm-hmm. but if you were to do an, a, a film adaptation of the Game of Thrones which departed more widely from the registering dialogue of the books um, I think you would lose less with Martin than you do with Tolkien
0: mm-hmm
1: no, Just because yeah the, the, the style the word choice it's so it's it, Tolkien is a much more finely crafted, linguistic performance, uh, not just in Martin, but then most books of this kind. So, um, uh, it, it, yeah, so so I agree. It's definitely something that we need to be thinking about. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, it's a really big question. I mean, sort of embedded in this is how, to what extent are we going to be trying to make the, this, you know, the Silmarillion film thing, be the books on screen, right? You know, I mean, I've, I've said many times in talking about adaptation, that's not really possible, and that's not really what we should be trying to do. And yet, we don't want to forget them entirely. And when we're attributing speech to people, um, you know, we need to be at least very careful and very deliberate about how we deviate. so there are, but there are other factors uh, here too. And Philip Menzies had a fantastic point. First, he made uh, uh, he made a, a good general point about the temptation to treat Tolkien's work as a sacred text, and therefore, as as he was making, treat it quite differently than than Tolkien himself treated it. Um, and so we do need to be careful about that. Um, but uh, but I was especially interested in the comment that Philip made. He said the style of the Silmarillion. Is It's effectively a summary of the Elder Days. Uh, The prose is quite condensed, and the lack of of the richness of the Lord of the Rings, uh, and and, and it lacks the richness of the Lord of the Rings and has little dialogue. Our adaptation will need to add significantly to the dialogue that exists in the book to make it accessible to the audience and to make it into a true drama. Um, Philip, you are absolutely right, and this is a really important thing that we have to be thinking about. Um, The biggest thing it's not just a transition. From, when we're adapting the Silmarillion, we're not just thinking about taking a written medium and making it into a visual medium. We're talking about fundamentally changing the genre of this work in exactly the way that Philip describes. The Silmarillion is a summary. It's, uh, the, the word that Christopher Tolkien uses to describe the style is an epitome. That is, it's meant to be just a short summary of this overall history. Um, and you may remember, those of you who remember the Silmarillion seminar will remember there are a bunch of times when I talked about the, sort of the narrative distance of the Silmarillion and how often the Silmarillion is kind of looking at things from like a thousand feet up and doing a really, uh, a really broad summary. And then sometimes um, at particular moments in stories, the, narr- the, the, the narration will kind of zoom in and we will get dialogue and we will get descriptions of actual events but the but the standard narrative position of the film is really high off the ground. it's it's and and Philip is right. We can't do that. you know, and so therefore, to take the standard prose style of the Silmarillion as our model is kind of false because that's not the kind of story that we're telling. It's not exactly how Tolkien would do it, if he were doing it. And the example that uh, Philip went on to point to is The Children of Hurin. In The Children of Hurin, Tolkien is attempting to do something more like a novel v- version, you know, a novel-like story of of, of the story of Turin. And, um, and, and the narrative is different. You know, the whole approach to the narrative is different than in the published Silmarillion. So I think that that's that that's an important point. So I, I'm, I, I I shouldn't go on with all of these things. There are a couple more uh, 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 comments that I wanted to to touch on that I thought were really interesting. Um, but uh, your reactions to some of these other general points? <sighs> uh,
0: that's a pretty interesting point uh, about the the that the, the the language is also tied up in the way that the story is delivered. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's a summary. Huh hadn't considered that i mean mostly we were just thinking about sort of the 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 nature of the um um the language you know it's archaic or whatever but actually yes that's true a, 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 at least a non-trivial you know uh, it's non-trivially tied to the to the type of story they're telling and right. and i think there's an extent to which that part of the story naturally must change because um well i don't know i guess i don't know 100 percent, but um uh you know in a film adaptation you don't want it it, it can't be a, just a summary it can't be like a 10,000 foot view of the story it has to be at the level of the characters so that part i think must change
1: yeah um i the, the main thing is i think we would be exerting a very inappropriate and misleading kind of pressure on ourselves if we tried to make the dialogue of the characters sound like the narrator of the Silmarillion, because Mm -hmm. that's a totally different kind of register. As Philip points out, he's doing a different thing. The narrator of the Silmarillion is doing a different thing. None of our speakers, unless we do a narrator's uh, voiceover, you know, like a uh, Aragorn, Sam, you know, whoever our narrator is at the time. Um, unless that narrator does a voiceover, we're not going to be doing a, that kind of a narrative, a narrator voice, and certainly at no point are we going to be doing the kind of um, overview voice. Uh, I mean, unless again, unless we choose to do a sort of a voiceover overview section um but but in standard you know the standard flow of of a normal episode it's going to be mostly dialogue it's going to and and for that we have to be thinking not about how do we make it sound like the silmarillion but we have to be thinking about how would these characters talk um and that is you know it's still good and it's still very appropriate for us to be thinking about Tolkien's style and the way and the kinds of choices that Tolkien made when he made some of these characters talk and I think that following those directives, um, you know, following those, those impulses seems to be right. Again, I think about that letter I was pointing to earlier on when he talks about um, why Theoden speaks the way that he does. Because that's how he thinks. And to talk like a modern 20th century person, you have to think like a modern 20th century person. And these people, none of them, are thinking like modern 20th century people. Right. And so they shouldn't be talking like them. Um, the closest that we get are in the Hobbits. And I actually think that, that uh, I'll give, you know, Sean Astin credit. I think that his sort of, uh, you know, the accent that he did seems to me to fit. But of course he got an adva- he had an advantage in that Tolkien does Sam's accent. You know, he does Sam's, not quite his accent, um, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the dialect, the dialect. of Sam's, of Sam's language. Yeah. The word choice, offensive. the cadence. Yes, yes. grammatical it's, it's constructions. Much more, yeah, yeah. He gives much more directives for sort of how Sam talks mm-hmm. than he does for any of the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but again, even that itself shows that this is something that we need to think about and that the way that we should be thinking about it is to be thinking about where these people are coming from. Um, so... Um, so, so yeah, I, you know the 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 problem kind of comes in: how many levels of distinction are we going to be talking about? You know, I don't think, for instance, um, the dialogue of the Valar is going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, do we do we do we try to introduce a real distinction between the way the Valar talk and the way that the Elves talk, for instance?
0: Well, and and I think more broadly, uh, Trish was getting into this uh, when you when you went on hiatus. <laughs> uh, right. Do we try to differentiate different groups of people? Also, you know, another question um, would be uh, the the let's see, and I think this is one of the comments that you have in there. The the narrators is yes. there a distinction between the narrators' register and voice and the characters? I sort of, sort of off the top of my head, I kind of feel like. I feel like that might be appropriate. That one potential compromise might be to have the the narrator, uh, whoever's doing the narration. Although, although to the extent that if we're doing the narration from the point of view of individual characters, then 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 we have less flexibility for this. But I was thinking, the narrator might be a good place to do some of the slightly more Tolkieny word constructions. You know, where it's a little more. Like longer, more complex grammar run on sentences et cetera whereas in in character to character dialogue, where you kind of want things to be a little more efficient and have some energy, that might be a place to, to to push away a little bit from the from the actual register of the the published Silmarillion and toward something more more appropriate for for the screen right. So right. so maybe the you know the, the we can have our cake and eat it too. The narrator can talk in long flowy sentences and then the characters get slightly more punched up lines.
1: Right. Well, but okay, but here's the problem. If our narrators are characters Car-
0: Yes, that's yeah, that's the problem. Our narrator yeah. has to
1: talk like Sam. Yes. You know, if it's Sam
0: Yes, so, and you definitely won't use the tone of voice. Won't be talking like the Silmarillion. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Now, well, I now, do think that. Now, this is another reason I think why we need to also keep a narrator story throughout a whole season. You know, however, we decide, whoever we decide the narrator is going to be, and whatever that's going to be, it needs to be the whole season. But then you can switch. But you're right. And then I think you're right. I think whoever is the narrator obviously would speak in whatever dialect or tone has been selected for that character or that that race.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, my my, as I as I said before, my initial impulse is to say that we shouldn't do a voiceover narrator. But you know, the more I think about it, the more I sort of am suspecting that when we get into the actual nitty gritty of planning a season episode by episode, it's going to be hard to avoid doing any kind of narrative voiceover. There's going to be so much kind of exposition and connecting of dots, you know, that we're going to need to do, especially in the early seasons when I I mean, season one is going to span a really long number of years, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to have to be able to give some sense of that, and you know, unless we want to pull out you know, a really, an an increasingly comical, you know, 500 years later, uh, text across the bottom of the screen, you know, every other episode, which is going to become absurd very quickly, we need to, we're going to have to do narrative voiceover to bridge some of those gaps. Um, you know, like when we're when we're watching the unrest of the Noldor happening, we're going to have to convey that. You know, the 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 Eldar get to Valinor, and then we've got three ages while <laughs> while Melkor is chained, right? Uh, so we have to convey. Yeah. You know, it's it's we're going to have to convey this passage of time, and I so I think we're going to have to use at least some voiceover narrative. Um,
2: well, the other so, thing we do with that, I mean, we're getting back into the narrator again, is but, we, you know, we've talked about the narrator or narrators having their own story. So, I mean, you can time yes. the episode where that happens to be like the end of an episode, and then you return back to the narrator's story at mm-hmm. the end of that episode, you know, as opposed to... I mean, I would rather do that than have a voiceover in the middle of the story. You know what right, I mean? So, you know, we can, yeah, we can yeah, time we can, it properly. We can... You know, if we decide we're going to have kind of bookended or some, something like that with the narrators then we plan it so that some like a time frame like that where you've got a big time lag happens at the end of an episode
1: Right, right. Agreed. Um, yeah. No. We'll, we'll have to see that. We'll have to. We'll have to decide how to balance that. And again, we'll get a better feel yeah. of that as we go through the flow from one episode to another.
2: But... <laughs> Philip says, "Compression of time." Here we come.
1: <laughs> exactly. Pretty soon, Philip, it's going to end up just like uh, Peter Jackson's Hobbit, where we're yeah. going to make like, the whole First Age happen in about twenty-five years. Uh,
2: Melkor uh, was shown chained for two days. Yeah, then... he
1: was chained for a day and a half. But like, we've got to, you know, yeah, <laughs> we're just going to announce like midway through that, like, oh yeah, like we somehow we've got to get. All all the way back over to middle Earth in about eighteen hours so uh so let's uh let's let's, let's start moving <laughs> anyway um, yeah no i, I see but the, that's exactly what I am resisting i i don't I think that if you if we compress if we skip the gaps in years, it fundamentally changes the story uh to compress time. It was already funny enough uh when Jackson did it in The Hobbit if we try to do it to the first age oh my gosh I mean. As, uh, as you know, as Tolkien says in the beginning of, of uh, you know, in chapter three of *The Hobbit*, you know, about Bilbo's time in Rivendell, you know, it's a strange thing that times that are good, that uh, you know uh, days that are good to have and times that are good to spend are uh, are 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 easily are not much to talk about, <clears throat> right? Um, so the days, the years, the many, the long ages of bliss in Valinor um, is not going to. Uh, we're not going to be able to spend much time on it without it being really boring. Yes. Um, so we're going to have to skip over a lot, but we have to convey... If we do not convey the fact that Ages of Bliss have in fact happened, then <clears throat> the story, the impact... If the, if the reader is left with the impression that the Noldor just got to Valinor the day before yesterday, and now they're falling away and being you know tempted by Melkor, um, you know, if, again... In like a a sort of pseudo Jacksonian compression of time. That's how we would do it, right? We'd get them over, and Melkor would be waiting for them. And like the day after they arrived, he would start whispering to Feanor, who would already have been born somehow. And and you know, and we'd be immediately off into the. Well, you know, that. You
2: know what we do to show time passing is we just have one whole episode of the of the trees going coming on, going off, coming on, going off. On, <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and people singing in the background. See, people right.
2: running around really fast, festivals, blah, 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 blah.
1: blah, right. blah, 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 blah. A time-lapse video. of the This of Eleanor, yeah. For a whole
2: episode. And that'll be,
1: like, you know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's I think would would really that would be capture the spirit yeah. of what we're of what, of what we're <laughs> looking for. Absolutely, um, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, but but you know, thinking back to to again to the to to the narrator thing, and again coming back, Dave, to the comment you mentioned, Shelby Seymour was the one who made that comment about mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, giving each narrator uh, their own writer's voice, and could we change storytelling styles uh, per narrator? Um, I really like that. Now, I, I think ultimately we can't do that. I mean, if you really did that to the fullest extent then, you know, like Fanor as he was depicted by one narrator would be different from Fanor as depicted by another narrator and we couldn't do that. Like that would be way too hard to ask people to adapt. Oh god, uh, yeah that would be painful. You know, so like the actors themselves, you know, so basically we do have to sort of accept that we are building this alternative first age and the narrators are just the different narrators are just, you know, introducing us and giving us different glimpses and commentaries on that. But um, that is but, a but, but yeah well, so I just in the dialogue go, and stuff. If
2: we if we could go back to sort of how we do this, I mean, I I still think we need to probably do some gradation in terms of race. So the Valar have a particular yes. register, you know, the elves and men. I mean, you know, I mean, it comes down to even simple things like do they use contractions or not? Yes. So like elves would not use contractions, right? They'd be like data or like whoever. Didn't use contractions, <laughs> right. right? Right. Um, men would, you know, say, and then as you get down further, and then a partic- then you, you you have other gradations, you know. Then you get into this thing of, well, do the Greenwood elves talk different from the, you know, uh, uh, Doriaf elves? I mean, you know, it's like you. I don't know. Men same way, you know. Do the Adine have a different register than than you know common men? I don't know, you know. But maybe we don't have to worry about
0: that. And the hillbillies much. from the east for the summer.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, we're not going to have hobbits in the silver line, so we have to worry about that. I mean, maybe we don't. Dwarves probably would have a very, I would say dwarves probably have a very difficult way of speaking, because given that, like, I mean, they're going to talk funny, because yes. they are formed funny. You know, Ale didn't really know enough to really get them kind of aligned properly, so they will always be a little bit kind of off in their, in their grammar and how they talk. Hopefully not Scottish, but... You know.
1: Yeah, I think we would want so, to resist that particular story. Well, and that like is,
2: I was saying when you were gone, you know, I almost think we need to sort of synthesize, you know, I mean, it, you know, in a movie it's like if we we'd have speech expert come in and actually synthesize a whole different level of dialect so it's not absolutely identifiably British, not absolutely identifiably American, not absolutely identifiably Scottish kind of thing. Um, it does it I does
0: bring up a, an interesting question of of uh, the 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 sort of rhetorical style and dialect and stuff in the Silmarillion that I think that I think all of us admire and enjoy and is part of our enjoyment of the book. How much of that is an artifact of the of the conceit of the book, which is these are tales told from the point of view of the elves, probably right. in the voice of some of of some elvish scribe or elvish uh, uh, story writer. So, in other words. Um, uh, Tur and, and Turin and Hur and Hurin and Baron and all those guys. They didn't actually talk like this. This is just how right. the elves imagined them talking when they recount right. these tales, you know, ten thousand right. years later or something like that. Uh, you know, like like is it would it what would be more authentic to just slavishly follow the book and just try as whenever possible to just use tolkien's language directly or to 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 you know uh, embrace kind of the spirit of the of, of the the way the stories were told and try to do something you know that that recognizes that
1: yes yeah i I, I mean I do think that's an important factor that we there is. There is not a really wide variety of rhetorical registers no, in the there dialogue of the Silverillion. But Dave, you're right. That's why, right? Because again, the whole premise of this thing is that it is much more unified in its origin. Um this is we are not being given, we're not just this is not us being just shown, you know, the the camera is running in the first stage, and this is what these people actually said. This is this is, as you say, a much later uh, account generally, from the elvish point of view of these stories, therefore again that 's another reason why i don 't think we can just take the default prose register of the Silmarillion and say, This is how people in the Silmarillion must talk right, um, right. because we 're doing as philip says we 're doing a drama we 're not doing that we 're not doing the epitome we 're not doing the here 's how elves right. would tell these stories um, in their own words. Um, we are we are br- trying to bring people into encountering that, so I well, do think you know, that we need to do that and and the, many of the distinctions you guys were talking about, I absolutely right. support. I think that we should have the humans speak differently. I think that we should have the Odine speak more like the elves than right. the easterlings mm-hmm. absolutely right. um uh, you know, even then like the children of Haleth, and then you know, as, uh, so like the you know, so the uh, the the Woodmen, like Brondir's people that Turin interacts mm-hmm. with, for mm-hmm. instance, should speak sp- differently. Yeah. Should speak differently from Turin because Turin was raised in the House of Hurin, which was like the most elf-centric house right. of of all of the of the Edain, and and the Easterling, you know, Bor and Ulfast, should speak differently, right. uh, even you know, from the people of Haleth, and and um, here's another major issue that we haven't even mentioned. Languages, like actual linguistic, not not dialectical differences, but language differences. I feel at the very least we've got to make this gesture. Now, like, I don't think that we need to go all purist and be like, actually, we should have all of the elves speaking in Quenya in Sindarin with English subtitles. Like, I'm not suggesting that. (laughs) (laughs) But, But I do think at the very least... Through the dialects that we use in dialogue, we should be at least making a nod towards this. I mean, the division between Sindarin and Quenya, for instance, is a big deal in the Silmarillion. You know, the people who speak the language of Valinor and the people who speak the the, the language of you know the, the language of the Grey Elves—it's um, a huge distinction and has major story importance. Um, and for us to ignore it, for us to make all elves talk the same, is to make a big decision about how we're changing the story in a way I don't think we want to change the story. Um, And the same, Trish, as you were saying with dwarves. Um, Making the dwarves sound different, not just have an accent, like a Scottish accent, but speak actually differently. Right,
2: the way they actually, maybe more like Yoda.
1: Yeah, no, but you're right. Yeah, you know what I mean? That, that level spirit. of syntactic difference, I would see no problem right. with that, especially right. since right. dwarves come in relatively infrequently in this story, so we can make them <laughs> talk really funny and not suffer very much That's for true. it. Um, but uh, uh, and, and then actually, yeah, it would it would be really interesting then later on. Um, when, we, when we do, like, uh, you know, if we were to get to the later parts of the story, say we get into the Second Age, for instance, uh, you know, like ten years from now, you know, <laughs> we're in the Second Age and we want to do a season in which we depict, you know, the fall of Eregion, right, in which we'd have lots of interactions with the dwarves of Casa Doom, we could have them have a dialect which is similar to the dialect right. that the, that the Beleriand dwarves used, but slightly more modern. More it's, modern, right. So well, we, we, now, this we actually to leads jar. to
2: another point, too. And I thought about you when you were talking about Turin talking to the men of blah, 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 blah. I can't remember the names. But anyway, one of the things is also, and this would be true of the elves also, we could also use the register to show changes in the person or in the race. For example, Turin, when he starts to you know be the outlaw and be more in touch with those more outlander type people, his his own way of speaking may change. Mm-hmm. quote unquote deteriorate from the House of Huron. The elves, when the Noldor, you know, are, are are banished, yes, their language, the way they speak may also change. You know what I mean? So we can also use the register slash language to show I don't want to say deterioration, but a change. You yes. know, like in Turin's case, a change. In the Elves case a change. So that's another thing, you know, it's another sort of nuance thing there as well. Um, yeah. yeah, the Quenya and Sindarin thing, well, Quenya eventually becomes kind of like Latin, right? It becomes almost a lost language, so I'm thinking would the Valar and the elves in Valinor be speaking purely Quenya and then Sindarin is on the Middle Earth side of things, more predominant.
1: Yeah, well, and they, <clears throat> the Noldor stop speaking speaking Quenya except among themselves because they're accommodating right. themselves right. to, to right. the Grey Elves and because, of course, Thingol does his, you know, anti-Quenya right. thing. And so it becomes a major <laughs> right. political statement. So basically the Noldor are like, well, we don't, you know, unless we're there, we don't really want to offend people, so um, we're, gonna, we're gonna do it, though they keep speaking it to themselves and, you know, among themselves. Um, I don't know. I mean, how we, how we do that, how we handle, you know, do we ever have anyone speaking in Quenya? Um, you know... Do we uh, do it
2: like Jackson did with Thranduil and the Elves, where they speak it occasionally? and we get occasional subtitles, and then they throw in a word here and there when they're speaking, you know, like, you know, melon They use that a lot in, in The Hobbit. I mean, that's another way of doing it. Right. I mean, or, or I've seen it done in other movies where, where, like, two people who speak the same language start off speaking that language, but then somehow it, and I don't even remember how they do it, but as a viewer, I be, I came to understand that, in fact, what the movie's doing is showing me what they're saying. You know, they start speaking English,
1: Right,
0: but
2: the right. understood thing is that they're still speaking in their own language. I mean, there's some way that they've done that, and I can't remember how they did it in the past.
0: I find that yeah, I it. find that distracting when they do that. Yeah, when you, when yeah, you have two people, you when you have people, you know, starting out in their natural but, language and then yeah, shifting like Erica
2: says, and the Hunter Red October, they did that actually. Yeah, I yeah, how they did shifting that to English, October.
0: and you're just like, why would these guys be talking in English?
1: <laughs> right. Well, see, exactly, and that's why I I, I, I tend not to like the. If they switch back and forth or even interject quenya words, um that can be a way, Trish, as you say, to sort of retain the sort of otherness of their speech, right? A right. kind of a reminder. But I find it a little bit jarring as well because it's sort of a reminder that they're speaking in English. Like if they just speak English to each other, I can still kind of like in my imagination, you know, sort of think that they're being translated. Um But if they're going in and out of Quenya in English, it really like I can't avoid the fact that they're talking English because sometimes. But then, what do you do when they
2: come up against somebody who doesn't speak their language, right? And they're interacting or they're trying to interact with them, but everybody's speaking English. That's hard to also. Uh, Yeah, good point. Because they're not going to understand each other.
0: And also, and also, I don't want to discard those fantastic moments of of you know various characters shouting epithets and in. uh Sindarin or Noldorin and, and you know right like right. like like we don't want to just do away with uh with um I think it's who shouts aure Toluva. Yeah that's right. Yeah, oh yeah no. no, no yeah sense. day
1: will come again has to happen. Yes. Um Yeah. Uh, because the fact that he's saying that uh you know the the the, the fact that he's saying that in Quenya is it's it's not just the words that he says. It's the fact that he says it in Quenya, right? right. I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. No, but, I agree. We, but, to, but
0: to people's point of, you know, well, they do this on Star Trek, Doctor Who, and all that, the that That's right, but that's Star Trek, which is a science fiction show, and that's like a key that's like a that's like a key device you know um, right. people speak <laughs> okay. their own languages and then we have magic universal translators that that help us understand what they're saying like I don't want we do. we're gonna get on Star Trek It would be really dumb on this
2: well, we just add Quenya to the to the captions with subtitles <laughs> <choice on> your, <laughs> you know so spanish Finnish Quenya. French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only you only can't do French because Tolkien didn't like French. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's right, yeah. You yeah. would say not French.
2: Chinese. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I, it's it, it's really, I mean, we can't, at the same time, we can't create, we can't, again, change the story and just invent a common tongue. You know, it'd be like, actually, okay, uh, we're going to pretend that all of the characters in the story have just agreed to speak uh, English, you know, they've they've agreed to speak a common language, which is, you know, for our fictional purposes, English. Um, that's, of course, what happens in the Lord of the Rings, right? You know, that that the, 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 you know the linguistic situation that Tolkien imagines in the Third Age is that there is a common tongue which can right. be represented by English, um, but that situation is alien, fundamentally alien to the cultural moment. Of the Silmarillion it can 't happen. I mean, if we imagine that, we have to imagine the story circumstances that would bring it about, and remember the whole premise of the stories of the Silmarillion were to give a historical background to the languages that Tolkien had made so if we cre- if we utterly alter the linguistic situation we 're totally leaving the Silmarillion behind that 's the whole point of the Silmarillion so um, so so i don 't think that we can do that. Um, I don't have an answer to the language. I don't
2: either. Especially
1: the Quenya Sindarin thing.
2: And I don't see how we're going to have a decision today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, to what extent could we represent it dialectically? You know, is there a way that we can do that? I mean, it's it's not. um, Could we have a moment of. I mean, on the one hand, we can say. Well, this doesn't really come into Christ that we do We're not going to really come to the decision point on this one until we get the Noldor in Beleriand, right? So, when we're in Valinor, we're safe. When we're showing what's going on with Thingol and Middle Earth, we're safe. Um, but uh, but when we have the two elf peoples coming together, um, we need to we need to sort that out. Um,
2: I have a feeling that subtitles are going to have to figure in at least to some degree. You know, not like entire long dialogues, but like when the Noldor and the you know, First Come Ashore and meet their kindred, you know, there's going to have to
1: be like a subtitle moment there, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Philip, I am, I am tending toward my, my own, the best solution I've got to suggest, and I don't think it's a good one, but that 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 is my solution which is different accents. Yeah. Have, just have the different languages sound different. G- yeah. Um, and then you'd have to have the 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 actors would actually have to shift like when the Noldor start speaking Sindarin they would have right. to start they would have to change how they sound. You know, so they would shift. It, yeah. To I, I I don't know I don't know what. I mean, I guess to be fair, Sindarin should be uh you know in like a Welsh accent, right? I mean that's 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 Well, that's or what we yeah. should be doing.
2: Well, or like Timothy Fisher says, Quenya equals British English, cinderin elegant American English. Or it could be Quenya is RP British English, you know, and cinderin is Welsh English, maybe. Right. You know, that kind of right. thing. Right. Um,
1: yeah. 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 I mean, I, I – I, mean, I, I I, don't know. I, mean, I guess I don't think it's a great solution. No. Um But
2: – And just, I really – yeah, I yeah, I just yeah, – of course, and I, then the men have to speak American English.
0: And I would rather, <laughs> I like, like, given a choice, this is an area where I would, I, I would prefer to, 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 I wouldn't. My worry is that in attempting to do this, you would get so caught up in it that the result would be complex and distracting. Yes, that people yes. are going to be watching this and constantly aware of what everything sounds like, and and you know, and yeah, and I mean, trying to keep track mentally, Wait, where's it. that guy from again? Yeah. What accent is that? I, I would, yeah. I'd rather focus on language, um, and 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 the dialogue, the actual things the people they are they and have them all use yeah. exactly the same accent, or just you know, whatever the natural diversity is of the actors that right. they have and stuff. Like, I would, I would hate to micromanage this so. Carefully that that it just ends up being kind of a mess and very distracting. Rather, well, it seems yeah. to me
2: like we yeah. I mean that that's kind of what Dave you're saying is just let's we ignore it. Like everybody speaks English, uh, maybe even the same accented English, and the, and then it's the way that they speak that makes a distinction, and we just don't worry
0: about it. Yeah, the the truth of the matter is there seems to be enough, um, there seems to be enough explicit focus on the differences between elves and humans and the differences between the different types of elves you know like people talk about it they bring it up they explicitly address it in as they you know in as they navigate the various interpersonal relationships and issues and stuff there's enough explicit focus on it that i don't think it's necessary that it be readily apparent to the audience in the way people dress or the way people talk or that kind of stuff i'm not saying we shouldn't you know that it's not worth trying to do some of those things but but i think for each choice they have to step back and say is this actually going to work or is this just going to be kind of weird and messy and complex yeah. and, and yeah. hard and yeah. and whenever and, and as you
2: say you know er-
0: Go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Sorry,
2: well, I was just going to say, Erica Henson brought up kind of what you, you were just referring to was in addition to to spoken, we have visual. So as we've talked about before, people's stature, people's costumes, you know how they look mm-hmm. are is also going to be a distinctive distinction making thing. So you know the languaging right. and spoken stuff isn't in a vacuum. So I don't know. I mean, yeah.
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to see. Again, I hate to flatten the language distinctions out too much, but Dave, I agree. We do have to make sure we don't lose the story in an attempt to to stick to, to details of register in that way. Um, I want to make sure we don't lose our other question entirely, which was how we handle chronology. Yes. Um, uh, and, and we're actually
2: kind of rolling down to our stop point, too.
1: We so. are. We are. Yeah, I just want to give a couple minutes to the chronology question. Because um, uh, we still do have a few minutes. Um, so the question was you know, do we bounce back and forth between co- contemporaneous plots, or do we jump around in time? A lot of people in the discussion groups were saying we follow, we follow the books uh, here, which is okay, but we have to be careful. We have to, we have to recognize, again, the book is doing a different thing. Um, you lose a lot of the immediacy of that. Um, especially if we're going to go into more detail. So let me give two examples of moments in the Silmarillion where I think that this really comes into crisis. One is when you have stories, detailed stories, which actually, which clearly overlap in time. The most obvious example within the Silmarillion is the story of Tuor and the story of Turin. You'll remember perhaps that moment when the two of them actually cross paths, right? Turin is on his way, having just been uh, enchanted by Glaurung. And has left Nargothrond and is on his way up to Hithlum. And uh, Tuor and Varanwe are on their way uh, uh, from Vinyamar to Gondolin. And they, uh, Tuor and Varanwe actually see Turin walk by, right on his way north, as they cross crossing, you know, their paths literally cross there uh, in the in the dire winter that happens there. Um, those stories are happening at the same time. So if there's there's It's easy enough when you're doing the epitome version that we get in the Silmarillion to do, here's the tale of Turin Turambar, and here's the tale of Tuor, um, uh, side by side, because you don't have to go back that far to remember how these things fit together chronologically. If we're going to spend, oh, I don't know, say two seasons doing the story of Turin, which we could well do... um, you know, and then we're going to spend time doing the fall of Gondolin. People are going to have to remember back a long ways in order to make those connections. It would be easier to for people to get a sense of how is the narrative of the end of the First Age coming together. You know, what is the overall story? Um, for people really to be able to get that, there, uh, you know, th- there is an argument to be made for interweaving them. Um, so that we can we can keep them both going, um, and have help people to understand how these stories all fit together. Um, the other example that I would point to is when the Noldor return to Middle Remember that <clears throat> um, chapter, short chapter that we get. So uh, uh, Fingolfin and uh, the rest of the Noldor uh, arrive. Cross the Helcaraxa, and they arrive, and the moon rises uh, as they sound their horns uh, when they come onto Middle-earth. And then you remember the narrative pauses, and it's like, meanwhile, here's what's been going on for the last couple thousand years in Middle-earth, right? And Thingol's establishes kingdom, and then the orcs attacked, and all these other... Here's what happened in the Three Ages, and then Melian warned them, and they started making weapons, and then the orcs attacked, and all these bad things happened. Um, Are we going to do it like that? Are we just going to spend time in Valinor and then be like, oh, meanwhile, um, let's jump back in our narrative a few thousand years? Or are we going to try to keep people abreast as we move forward? Uh, are we going to you know, be, have the bliss in Valinor and then cut and go across and say, here's what's happening, meanwhile, in, uh, in, in Middle-earth? Remember, the same thing is done when men come into the scene. Right? You know, the Adine arrive, and it's like, oh, and awoke um, a long time ago, actually, and they've been doing stuff, and we don't really know, and uh, but here they are, right? Is that how we're going to do it, <laughs> or what's going to happen? So um, those are the, the, the some examples of the times when I think this is really kind of going to be an issue and uh, the sort of things that we need to talk about. So what do you think? <laughs> oh, God.
2: Well, yeah, I, we, we you just know, like picked
0: I, like all the hard the the really really hard issues today, didn't we? <laughs>
1: yeah, these are really difficult. Again, and see, this...
2: again, I think this comes back to needing a narrator who can, and again, not in the middle of a of a episode, but you know, as as like an ending or a beginning of an episode to you know go forward, go back. I mean, I do think if we follow the book, I do think we do that. And I don't think there's anything – Wrong with that? I mean, somebody said, like the two, like example is the two towers. You know, what yes. chapter was from Perry and Pippin, Pippin and Perry and Mippins' point of Mippen. view? <laughs> yeah. The other from you know Aragorn and, and Legolas and Gimli's and, and yes. point of view. You know, even just in that one book, and I think we could do that. But again, I'm I'm back to you know I think we need a narrator to be able to you know to to be the tour guide for the viewer, and you know. Make sure that they're oriented properly for each episode, kind of thing. If we do that, and I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong
0: with that. I think yeah,
1: I important. agree. And of course, the the choice that Jackson made in his Two Towers of also going back and forth with Frodo right. and Sam is merely a logical extension of the choice that Tolkien had already made, as you said. Right. We're going, you know, in the Return of the King, Tolkien is jumping back and forth from one group to another. Um, that is, on the uh, on you know, Frodo and Sam excluded, right? right but right. um uh, so 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 again you know, yeah there's definite precedent for that Tolkien doesn't do that in the silmarillion but again that's because it's different it, it is you know dave you can you know as you were suggesting before you can still hear the echoes of where the silmarillion started right with the book of lost tales mm-hmm. um we do get very much, this is the story of Turin-Turambar from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you put all of these stories together, the story of Turin, the story of Baron and Luthien, the story of the Nyrnith Arnoidead, the story of, of the fall of Gondolin, um, they do all amount to a history of the end of the First Age, but that's, ex- not, that's not explicitly what's being told. Mm-hmm. right? The question is, is that what we want to tell, mm-hmm. or is it not? Do we interleave those? Because we could. We could build drama, um, by going back and forth between what's going on with Turin and what's going on with Tour, for instance. Um, you know, we, could, we could show those things happening at the same time, just as we could show no, we would not give equal time to what's going on in Valinor and what's going on back in Middle-earth, um, but there I do think that we could get, um, we could go back and forth. Um, and actually it might make kind of a nice break from the bliss of Valinor, actually, um, to go back and have scenes with Thingol and Melian uh, in middle Earth and cured in the shipwright, and what's going on back there um, that so I think,
0: and i think I think so so this a related question to this um is is structure, so are you gonna do this? are we gonna do this Silmarillion book style where episodes are contiguous um um stories, or are we gonna do it Game of Thrones style where in any one episode or set of episodes, you're getting scenes from six different places. Because right. I think the chronology thing might be less of a problem if you do contiguous, con- cohesive episodes. If, if the only mm-hmm. jumps in time and space, or at least large jumps in time and space, are between episodes, um, mm-hmm. then I think it's maybe a little bit... I, I think that's mm-hmm. okay. I, if we're doing this almost like anthology style, like where it's just a series of stories and they're roughly chronological order but not quite there's some you know back and f- sometimes it's arranged in in you know thematic in a way that makes more sense thematically than it does um mm-hmm. chronologically but if we're going to try and do game of Thrones style where we get you know we we get invested in particular actors or characters and we want them to be on the show always because that's what draws in viewers or whatever uh, so we need to make sure we're at, we every single episode has at least one melian and thingle scene then right. i think things get much more complex
1: yeah, yeah, and I, I certainly don't think we would need to take it that far, yeah, you know, to yeah, say, no. like, yeah, yeah, we've got a shoehorn Thingle and Melian in every time. Yeah. Goodness knows we don't want to put ourselves into the place of having to shoehorn Kierden the shipwright in to every episode. Right. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 I think we'd run out of dialogue for him pretty quick. Yeah, but, that, that uh,
0: is true, but I, I do, I think, I think that would... That would change the nature of the 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 chronology problem. I think it 's a little simpler if you don 't try to do that and also just just for my personal taste, I actually hate it when Game of Thrones does that where where I have an entire- where you have an episode and what you 've gotten is um about four minutes of scene with each well, location and character, and nothing happens yeah, i hate yeah, that I, I would rather yeah. not do that. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, this actually does lead
2: into the questions that we're going to be asking for next episode because this, what we're talking about, very much applies to sort of how we're going to map out the seasons right yeah. i mean it does you
1: know it does and and this is you know this is an i mean i guess i'm okay with our not coming to really firm decisions about these two issues because we can begin without firm issues these are things mostly i just want to make sure that we're thinking about this and that you know this is this is more of an awareness raising episode than a we have to make a concrete plan yeah episode. i don't see how we can yep,
2: decide yeah. like you um, say we have a little bit of grace because you know in the beginning maybe even in season 1 we're not going to have as much of a you know conundrum about
1: like yeah the thing on Melian stuff is the only thing that i could see yeah. coming up in season yeah. 1 really yeah. um
2: well it, i think he's just going to stand like a stone for at least three or four episodes
1: exactly right yeah you know. that would actually be hilarious wouldn't it we we get the scene <laughs> we get the single of the a single <laughs> million uh, going in and then you know and then we see, we we end with him frozen in delight looking at Melian, and then we come back like four episodes later and he's, he's still, still there. there well you know
2: my my picture of that has always been like he's st- you know that Melian doesn't necessarily doesn't get you know stock still he's stock still and she kind of like keeps going off collecting flowers dancing comes back checks <laughs> on him he still you know goes off again comes back he's still you know yes. I am
1: <laughs> right right yeah. Yeah, we come back and like you know, vines have grown up around him, <laughs> yes, you know, and everything. It's in his hair. Yes, it's in his hair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The opportunity. She keeps for him off.
2: She keeps him cleaned up. You know. She's exactly. Yeah, we just. Away
1: cut back once in the middle to show her sort of dusting and weeding around, <laughs> around the goal. <laughs> you know, maybe she erects a little stone wall, you know. Right, right.
2: To net over him,
1: you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Funny. absolutely. Anyway. Um, so, uh, here, here, here's another important question, though, I think. Um, I, we have the narrators. This is where I think, okay, because if we do if we use the narrators in the cool way we were talking about using the narrators, that seems to me strongly to bias the question in favor of telling contiguous stories mm-hmm. rather than jumping back and forth and doing cliffhangers. Uh, because, uh, like, so, I mean, take when we get to tour and, and tour in, and, and, you know, when things really kind of start to heat up and a bunch of things starts happening at the same time uh, towards the end of the first stage. You know, we're not, if, if we shift, you know, our narrators. You know, we shift from like Sam to Celeborn to Aragorn. Uh, you know, at different moments, it's not like one of them is going to be like, you know, with within the frame story of Celeborn and Rivendell. For instance, we're not going to be like a moment where Celeborn says. Now, for some inexplicable reason, I feel like picking up this story where we last left Turin, you know, uh, uh, with the men in the woods, calling himself, Neath and the wrong, and I'm just going to move forward from there. I mean, there's no way we could hand those stories off from one narrator to another. Uh, it, it makes sense for one of them to tell the story of Turin, and another one of them to tell the story of Turin and the fall of Gondolin. It doesn't make any sense for them to be Passing it back in mid flow, no. um, so I, I kind of think we're gonna be if we do the narrator thing that way. We're gonna be stuck with doing a contiguous, um, yes. a contiguous story with not doing, yeah, you know, with with sticking to the to the to the particular stories. Though it might mean we need to do some narrative work and work in Easter eggs, you know, as as uh, as as Yana was suggesting. Um, like, you know, maybe we do. Uh, you know, we find some ways within the story to make connections to other stories. You know, we've gotta contrive ways to have them remember what was going on with Turin, you know, when we get to, to Tour. But but I, I don't know, it's it's kinda of hard for me to see how we could retain our narrative our narrator approach and and uh, still do a contiguous interwaist narrative.
0: Yeah, I don't know. But and I'm just balancing my mind Cause there are some um there are some points where like like as Philip Menzies points out that there are some cases where it would be nice to 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 indicate somehow that events are connected that Man woke when the sun first rises and that kind of stuff yes yes so but maybe that's maybe then what we do is is a, as we plan things out we have to not be. Slavishly tied to the structure of the Silmarillion. Okay, there's a chapter called Of Men and there's a chapter called Of the Sun. Right, absolutely. We look for opportunities to say, you know what, that's actually one connected story. Let's have somebody right. just tell all of that. Of yes. Men and the Sun and the. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, especially. Especially when things are, are chronologically contemporaneous, then, then that might be a good chance to tie things together. But in general, just look for opportunities to, to, you know, to synthesize a, a, a few different stories together.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And that w- but, but see, then that would suggest as well that we shouldn't be doing check-ins with Fingo and Melian. As we go through, no. somebody should be telling the Thingol and Melian story.
0: Yes. Right. I don't think check-ins with Thingle and Melian makes any sense. No.
1: Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, we're, so we so we lean away then from, although I do think it could make for, uh, I mean, I, I do think that it could work, again, sort of Two Towers style, uh, <laughs> interleaving of the stories, um, mm-hmm. And and just has really rich comic potential. I'm still just loving the Fingol and Melian scenes. But anyway, I... <laughs> <Me> too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we may need comic relief from time to time. Yeah. So <laughs> there,
1: should, there, there should totally be an outtake reel of uh, of you know Fingol with like you know squirrels running across his shoulders and <laughs> and, and uh, you know <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but 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 yeah. I know. I think if we're gonna do that, because essentially, I mean, again, Dave, thinking of what you were saying before about remembering the roots of this as a collection of stories that were being told, we're still doing that, right? We're changing the context. We're doing. We're 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 not making them a series of Elvish stories told in the Book of Lost Tales style, um, but making them a series of stories told from the point of view of the late thir- of the late third, early fourth ages. Um, yet nevertheless they are still a series of stories and so that means if we do that we're going to have to be okay with the fact that the consistent narrative of the whole thing might get lost people might forget but, you know it, it's if if our, go- our our goal can't be we want to make sure everybody has a sense of the flow of the narrative of the story of the first age because if that's our goal we shouldn't do it this way yes but I think that's okay. Well, I mean, I, think I that's
0: I, that well that would that would at least approximate the experience of reading the Silmarillion. Exactly.
1: It's much closer to the experience of reading the Silmarillion. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. We want people just, you know, week to week as they tune in to watch it and just be like, who are these people again? I know I've
1: seen <laughs> them. Right. If we can achieve that, we have we have we have really achieved something authentic. I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay, good. So uh, so are we, I, we... Hey, actually, sounds like we came to a decision about that. Uh, 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 Trish, do you agree with that? I do, I do, yes. Okay, okay. Yes. so we've come to a decision about the chronology. Uh, we're going to kind of hold the register thing to some extent in advance. We've we sort of discussed some issues there. Um, I do think we're going to end up with something like a reverse Silmarillion situation that is where the narrator has the most... Um, sort of elevated register of speech, by dint of choosing the uh, late Third Age, you know, Sam and Aragorn and people as narrators, we're almost by necessity going to have the narrators have the most modern um, register and -hmm. the dialogue be less modern. But that actually Mm -hmm. seems... Since the dialogue is going to be by far the majority of the script, that actually seems appropriate for the Silmarillion. Because we'll still be most immersed in that, in those registers of language uh throughout, but we will still have that point of contact that Sam and you know Aragorn and even Celeborn would give us uh uh through the narrator, so I actually think that that would work relatively well, but okay all right we should uh uh we should close. Thanks, everyone, for being patient with us, and I hope, uh, for those of you who are listening at home, I have no idea what this episode is going to end up sounding like, because uh, (laughs) we may have to splice together several different recordings. Uh, uh, Sorry for the technical uh, failures there in the middle. Not sure why that happened. Uh, But before we end, um, let's um, talk about, so for the next episode, the next episode is a really big episode. It's it's a really important episode. Um, Next episode, we're going to be laying out the uh, the the plot structure of the entire show. That is, we want to be thinking about big picture, not episode by episode, but Ooh big boy. picture season arcs. Okay, it's going to be controversial. It's going to be controversial. Uh, so we want to focus, especially of course, on season one. We need to by the end of the next episode, we need to be in a position to start talking about season one.
2: Do we want to do we want to limit it? And I mean, this thing is going to be like 50 seasons. So do you want to say like for the first five
1: seasons, maybe? Sure, Let's, that makes sense.
0: How about we try to lay out? How about like bare minimum layout, like the first season with some amount of detail? Uh, you know, at least a well. Couple no, no, of no,
1: no, no. because the detail of the first season we'll do at the beginning of season one.
0: Oh, okay, okay. Right.
1: All right. we need right. is like the endpoint, basically. Right. What's going to be the problem? So
0: not detail, yeah. but yes. Let, let's let's have like a the sufficiently sufficient roadmap for at least season one. Hopefully, additional seasons. Big picture of the rest of the show, but not but not require ourselves to do everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. no, no. We, we, we're not talking about mapping out, again, on an episode-by-episode episode basis, but um, we, we can be more confident in planning for Season 1 if we have a general sense of where we're headed. So if, like, basically, I would like to see at least the first three seasons.
2: Yeah, I'd say um, minimum the first three seasons. To have a sense of where possible. we're headed.
1: Again, because not episode-by-episode, we, we episode, yeah. but just to say, you yeah. know, Basically, the endpoints are, are going to be the critical thing. Where should season and, one and, end? What should be the culmination also, of season one?
2: What are the logical story arcs for each season? Yes.
1: And what should we include within those seasons? Right. Because there may be seasons in which we do want multiple storylines. Right, know, exactly. Different narratives yeah. coming in. Like the right. story of Thingo and Melian and what they were doing during the Bliss of Valinor, for instance. That's not going to be a whole season, you know. That yeah. might be an episode, uh, right. but it needn't necessarily be more than one episode. We could decide. But where will we do that? Will that be in season one? Will that come in season two? Well, it's going to depend upon what we want to do in those. So anyway, so that's so be recommended we're do next reading.
2: Time. Is what at least a, a, a like scan
1: up through. I recommend reading um, the. Oh, wholesome really no uh, okay so yeah well yeah it's tricky um
2: do we want to up to the coming of men maybe or
1: yeah I mean if you can just sort of refresh your memory you don't necessarily have to reread the whole thing but refresh your memory um, at least up through the return to Middle-earth, like the flight of the Noldor. Yeah, okay, I, I would right, say. I mean, that okay. seems to me... Yeah. Um, at the very least, we need to be prepared to be talking about that. Um, I don't think mm. that our initial projection here for you know, in, in, in the next episode is going to go all the way up and include things like Baron and Luthien and Turin and Turinbar. Right, um, right. But, but certainly make sure that you're familiar with the overall plot of the silmarillion stories at least up through the flight of the noldor to middle earth ideally through Beyond. um through the dagor bragalach basically yeah yeah um yeah. and uh yeah, yeah, so that, we can, so that we can be ready to talk about those things. So all you have to do is reread about half the Silmarillion. Oh, and you only have one week to do it in because...
2: Oh, uh, we're doing it next week, that's right. Yes, yeah, <laughs>
1: we're going to stay on schedule. Um, the way that we planning to do this, of course, we had to move this episode forward a week because I wasn't available last week. So um, this is going to be our general plan, if possible, moving forward. If something comes up and we have to shift an episode, we're just going to use the intervening week as our backup, but we're going to try good. to stick to Overall. the original. Schedule yeah. so, um, so we are planning to do in one week, not in two weeks. Um, the next, um, the next episode. So, so next Friday, same time is when we plan and hope to, to get back to this.
2: By the way, something that uh, just I want to say just one last thing. Something that Yana mentioned. I mean, when you're thinking about mapping out the episodes, remember how we do want to sort of, like, lead up to a dramatic conclusion. I don't want to say necessarily cliffhanger. At the end of a season, but there does need to be something that's going to pull the audience forward. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, days, exactly. At what moment we're going to end it? You know, what is right. going to be the culmination? That I think is a, is going right. to be a really important thing. As right. you say, it doesn't need to be a cliffhanger.
0: Clearly, um, we should end with the description of geography.
1: Yes, yes, <laughs> of Valerian and its realms. That's <laughs> totally yes, absolutely. That's what the culminating the climactic it moment. Bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right
2: well, we better get going on then, since everybody has only a week to do this.
1: Exactly, yeah. So uh, so get to uh, get to discussing. thanks, everybody. I appreciate, again, all of your comments. Uh, please oh, yeah. do Keep continue uh, 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 discussing on the discussion board. Your comments have been great. Uh, I look forward to continuing to read more of that. So, uh, so thanks very much, everybody. And I will say thanks for listening, and Godspeed.